Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hi, my name is Professor Andrew Sindoni. I'm a cardiologist at Concord Hospital and Wright Hospital in Sydney. I'm going to be talking today about aortic stenosis. It's easy to detect, more common than you think, and much easier to treat, and more serious than you think. So what I thought we'd do first is just talk about a patient. This is uh, Robert Jones, a hypothetical patient, 71 years of age, male, who's um, had some palpitations which went away spontaneously. He's got a bit of angina which is treated with nitrogen spray and he's also on a beta blocker. Paroxysmal atrial fibrillation on anticoagulation. And he's got some hypertension on a calcium channel blocker and an ACE inhibitor. He stopped smoking 10 years ago and he's not diabetic. And he's um, got a family history, well, he's not sure about his family history, normal cholesterol. So it just comes to see you because lately, doctor, I get tired very quickly and I'm really starting to feel my age. He's only 71, he's starting to feel his age. And he's starting to struggle to walk upstairs at the station. And uh, uh, it's like he's got no puff left. He's taking the wind out of his sails, but he's getting worried. So you think to yourself, hmm, could this guy have aortic stenosis? So what is aortic stenosis? The calcified aortic stenosis um, is a degenerative process usually, and it's an age-related process similar to atherosclerosis, but the results in the degeneration of the valve leaflets following calcification, uh, lipid deposition, and inflammatory infiltration. And the end result is the aortic valve, whatever the cause, the leaflets become progressively stiff, and that results in narrowing of the valve opening, and that obstructs blood flow and forces the heart to pump harder. So we classify it as mild, moderate to severe, there's mild, so it's just a you know, minor obstruction to blood flow, but you can hear maybe a soft murmur. And then moderate aortic stenosis um, is more significant. And then severe aortic stenosis. Now, you'll hear um, these really smart cardiologists, not me, really smart cardiologists um, saying, oh, that patient's got severe aortic stenosis. So, well, how do you work that out? How did she work that out? So some of the tricks, are, there's what we call the six signs of severity. That's the length of the murmur, the lateness of the peak, the presence of a fourth heart sound, uh, the presence of a thrill, uh, and then a soft aortic component of the second heart sound, uh, a narrow pulse pressure, that means the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure is less than 40 millimeters of mercury, a low volume slow upstroke carotid pulse. The more of those signs they have, the more likely the aortic stenosis is to be severe. It's not the loudness of the murmur, that's not one of the signs. So aortic stenosis can really cause quite debilitating symptoms, including chest pain, reduced physical activity, palpitations, maybe feeling faint or actually syncope, uh, particularly on exertion, fatigue, and shortness of breath. So those signs may be nonspecific, but if you don't think about aortic stenosis, you'll never find it. And what causes aortic stenosis? The most common uh, cause is uh, degenerative, as people get older, uh, particularly calcific, the rheumatic fever, don't forget about that, uh, radiotherapy, whether it be lung cancer, breast cancer, or lymphoma, can also do it, and congenital heart disease. And there are certain factors that can increase the risk of developing atrial fibrillation, uh, including advancing age, people over the age of 65, hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. They can all increase the risk of um, developing aortic stenosis. But those things do not preclude treatment. So what about symptoms? 
It's important because once a patient gets symptoms, uh, it can be a very late sign, and uh, that can really mean the patients are at very high risk by the time you develop, the patients develop symptoms. So that's because, if you can see this slide, that um, without the symptoms, you know, this can go on for quite a while, there's this increased obstruction, myocardial overload, and that latent period. But once they start getting symptoms, their chance of dying uh, really rises dramatically, and their survival can be limited to you know, only a short period of time. So, for example, once symptoms appear, untreated patients have quite a poor prognosis, and uh, they will experience worsening symptoms which lead to death. So 50% of untreated patients with a severe aortic stenosis will die within two years of symptoms. 50% will be dead in two years. And this is uh, different depending on the severity of the symptoms, um, for example, angina or syncope uh, compared to, say, shortness of breath. But really, the important thing to note is that once they develop symptoms, that's uh, almost an emergency, that we should be very, very quickly uh, sending the patient off to see a cardiologist and considering intervention. So uh, this is what we call big data. This is data from um, NIDA, the National Echo Database of Australia. Um, and <coughs> Jeff Strange, who uh, used to work with me, uh, is, is one, of, one of the leaders of this group. And what they did was they, they've got echocardiograms now on almost 2 million patients. They've got over 3 million echocardiograms. And what they find is that um, the aortic stenosis doesn't have to be as severe as we thought to carry an increased risk of mortality. So it's really important that we look into this, that um, that latent period is the time we should be managing these patients, not waiting until they start getting symptoms. The problem is that severe aortic stenosis has a prognosis as bad as cancer, and often worse than many cancers. So the time really has come now to start changing our thinking. So if you look here, as I said earlier, severe inoperable aortic stenosis uh, survival uh, is about three years. With lung cancer, about four years. You know, colorectal cancer, uh, five-year survival, about 12%. Uh, breast cancer, better, 23%. And if they've got distant metastasis, ovarian cancer is worse. Prostate cancer, uh, in this case, if they've got severe um, metastases, it's worse. So aortic stenosis, severe aortic stenosis, has a worse prognosis than most of those cancers. So we've got to pick them up early. We've got to try and manage them properly. But the problem is, this is quite common. How common? So the burden of heart valve disease is going to double by 2051. And uh, the problem is, you know, I guess it's not a problem, but the, the, the reality is that people are getting older and we're seeing more people with risk factors of atrial fibrillation like hypertension and diabetes, uh, although ho hopefully cigarette smoking is falling off. So for example, um, in 2021, there were estimated to be about 500 to 6,000 people in Australia with atrial fibrillation, where it's going to go to over a million by 2051. So how do we know? How do we know? The most important thing is to use your stethoscope and listen to the patient. Think about it, and then have a listen. So aortic stenosis is prevalent because of increasing age. One in eight people over 75 years are affected by atrial fibrillation. That's, by aortic stenosis, that's really common. One in, one in eight. So think about the people you see each day. If you see you know, 10 patients, that's two or three patients every day that do have aortic stenosis. If you don't listen, you'll never find it. So here's some of the prevalence data um, from that national ECHO database. You can see the number of people in Australia with aortic stenosis. Um, and and this, this is actually severe aortic stenosis. About two out of three of those will develop symptoms. One in three won't have symptoms. So you can see the, the numbers there. Sure, as people get older, uh, the numbers do start to rise. Peaks about age 75 to 79. So uh, really, as I said earlier, more than half of these individuals will die within five years without intervention. So general practitioners are the key people. They're the gatekeepers um, into uh, triaging patients and managing them and sending off for life-saving treatment 
faced with this quietly insidious disease. So new prevalence data also shows that many severe erythinosis patients get undiagnosed um, and untreated, and they often uh, end up dying. So 90% of severe erythinosis patients um, in Australia are not being treated with aortic valve replacement. So this is, a, this is really a tragedy because it's an eminently treatable condition, um, and, and the, as you'll hear in just a moment, actually fairly easily these days. So approximately 50% of patients um, with severe erythinosis may die within two years if, of experiencing symptoms, but we can manage it, we can treat it. So yeah, we think about how common is this? So if you think about um, patients with aortic stenosis, it's already prevalent in older patients and as the, patient, as the population increases, uh, this is gonna go higher and higher and higher. So this is a, a nice little calculator here. If you look at this, this uh, calculator, you look at, um, if you look at 129 elderly patients who, who see you suffering from aortic stenosis, 35% might have um, moderate or severe aortic stenosis, and 17 of those patients who have this severe aortic stenosis are not gonna live two years with untreated. So that's you know, 17 patients out of 129 elderly patients you see. So think about aortic stenosis because if you miss those patients, they won't be coming back to see you. If you see 387 patients, elderly patients, who might suffer from aortic stenosis, 106 of those uh, probably do have uh, moderate or severe aortic stenosis, and that means that 53 patients who um, have uh, aortic stenosis may not survive another two years. So uh, it behoves you to be going to look, looking into this. So how do we diagnose atrial aortic stenosis? It's actually not that hard. The most important thing, as I said earlier, is to use a stethoscope because that clinical examination in um, auscultating the chest uh, is important with the, the murmur that I've, I've mentioned to you just a moment ago and uh, looking at that heaving apex beat, echocardiogram is key. It's the key investigation uh, for diagnosing and also for looking at the severity. A stress test, if you're not sure of the hemodynamic or clinical significance in borderline cases. Chest X-ray, that can be helpful looking for cardiomegaly um, and also um, pulmonary congestion. ECGs may show uh, arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, ventricular ectopics, left ventricular hypertrophy, very important, or maybe some ischemia. And um, a CT uh, can be used to exclude coronary artery disease, CT coronary angiography, and also some other structural heart diseases. But the clinical examination is the key, the key. So auscultation is the first thing we do. Four in 10 Australians over the age of 60 say their GP rarely or never listens to their heart with a stethoscope. 40% of people age over 60. This is a real problem because it's not that hard to do. You were taught in medical school, you were taught when you're working in the hospitals. So um, as far as auscultation is concerned, it's actually not that hard. Um, just having the patient, uh, they don't have to lie down, just sitting in the chair, listen at the, um, at the apex and listen in the aortic area, which is in the second intercostal space, right sternal edge. And so the normal heart sounds just S1, S2. But an aortic stenotic murmur is that crescendo, decrescendo murmur um, heard exactly where that stethoscope is, the second intercostal space, right sternal edge. So it's boom, shh, boom, boom, shh, boom. The longer the murmur, the later the peak, the more likely it is to be aortic stenosis. So severe aortic stenosis sounds like a seagull. Shh, yeah, yeah. Really, it's that late peak and it's a long murmur. You can't hear that second heart sound very well or not at all. It's a long murmur with late peak rather than being crescendo, decrescendo. There are other murmurs which can, can mimic aortic stenosis. Um, like mitral regurgitation. Mitral regurgitation is more that pan-systolic murmur, that shh, shh, shh. 
It's a long moment, you can't hear the first or second heart sound at all, and it's hollow, it's like the same, um, same uh, amplitude throughout, the same pitch, whereas that aortic stenosis is that or with a late peak. So that's really important. But if you hear a murmur, you're not sure, um, an echocardiogram uh, is the way to investigate these patients or send them along to your humble suburban cardiologist. Pulmonary stenosis is less common. Um, it can mimic aortic stenosis, but it's, it's pretty uncommon except in children. And uh, tricuspid regurgitation uh, sounds similar to mitral regurgitation. So auscultation really is vital in early detection of aortic stenosis because the symptoms of aortic stenosis may not present until it's, it's, the patients are really quite far down the track of their journey and maybe, you know, I won't say too late, but very, very close to being too late. And auscultation is critical. Even a faint moment can indicate relevant disease because there's not much blood getting through the valve any longer. And as you can see in that um, pictorial down the bottom right-hand corner there, that a crescendo, decrescendo murmur during systole without anything in diastole. And the characteristics of the murmur is it can be quite harsh at the sternal border of the second intercostal space. So clinical examination, particularly auscultation, is the first step towards the diagnosis of valvular heart disease. And the assessment of its severity, uh, always bearing in mind that even a faint murmur uh, may be associated with relevant valvular disease, especially where there is concomitant heart failure. So uh, you know, in patients where you're listening, you hear a murmur, investigate it because, you know, oh, it doesn't sound like anything too bad, it's just soft, um, you really should be investigating it. So how are we doing in Australia? We've just done a, a survey of general practitioners. I wanted to share with you because this is really interesting data. This is the HealthAid GP survey called Cardiac Murmurs. So um, you can see here the age group of there was 354 general practitioners who were surveyed. And you can see that um, actually most of them are over the age of 55. And um, what is your profession? Almost all were GPs or a, G, a couple of GP registrars. And uh, about a 50-50 spread between men and women. Uh, the majority were in New South Wales and Victoria, and then Queensland, a few, a few of the other states. And uh, the majority were metropolitan, uh, about a fifth were regional, a few remote. And how many hours do they work? Most GPs work pretty hard, more than 30 hours uh, per week. Um, I work about 60 hours a week. And you can see here that um, in the past two weeks, how many patients with heart murmurs have you detected by auscultation, specifically by the use of the stethoscope in your practice? And unfortunately, half said zero. And the reason is that if you don't listen, you'll never find it. So yeah, sure, in some cases they might have listened and heard nothing. They might have listened and missed something. But if you don't listen, you'll never find it. So that's really important. Um, one patient detected, uh, about a fifth. Uh, two patients are detected, less than a fifth. And then after that, very few. So, you know, you say, oh, I see this patient all the time, I know them very well. But if you don't listen, or you've never listened, or you haven't listened for a long time, you may be missing hemodynamically significant aortic stenosis. And as I've told you, this is a really serious, important diagnosis. Now, of those patients with a heart murmur, you detected, how many of those are more than 65 years of age, that highest risk group of patients? Half in this survey, half. And uh, younger patients, um, uh, not so many, but you can see that uh, not many patients um, were detected, so it's a problem. Considering all the murmurs detected in the past two weeks, regardless of the age of the patients, how many of those were not experiencing any obvious symptoms? So you just listen, oh, there's a murmur. Did you know you had a murmur? No. Do you feel sick? No. It's still important. 
because if we don't investigate those patients we hear a murmur, we may be denying them a treatment which has potential benefit. So if they've got a hemodynamically significant aortic stenosis, they may not get symptoms until it's very, very late in their uh, disease progression. So um, you can see here that half of the patients are, you know, had none, but you can see that there's uh, all the murmurs detected in the last two weeks. How many of those were not experiencing symptoms? Uh, a lot were experiencing symptoms, so maybe that was a bit, a bit late in their disease progression. So listen to your patients' hearts. How many patients have you referred for an echocardiogram in the last two weeks? 30% uh, of, of respondents said none, none. Um, one patient in a quarter, uh, another quarter said uh, two patients, and the rest were, were fairly, fairly few. So and as I said earlier, an echocardiogram is a key investigation, non-invasive, 20, 30 minutes, easy to do, and it will detect aortic stenosis and other valvular lesions. About 200 pieces of information, left ventricular function, uh, diastolic function, pulmonary hypertension, the size of the atria, pericardial disease, really nice. So um, an echocardiogram is a great test for detecting atrial fibrillation and diagnosing other uh, conditions which may coexist from a cardiac perspective. How many patients were referred to a cardiologist or physician for further evaluation of a murmur in the last two weeks? 60% of patients respondents said none. None. Okay. As a cardiologist, that makes me a bit depressed because people aren't sending people to me. But um, you know, one patient, about a fifth said one patient had been referred, um, uh, and only 10% uh, said two patients. So if you don't listen, you won't find it. If you don't find it, you're not going to refer. How many of your patients have prosthetic heart valves? That's important because um, those patients uh, need to be managed a little differently with um, uh, antibiotic prophylaxis. And remember, if they've got a tissue valve, uh, um, they don't need anticoagulation unless they're in atrial fibrillation, and that's with a DOAC. If they've got a metal valve, they need anticoagulation with warfarin. You can see 20% uh, uh, of respondents said no patients with a prosthetic heart valve. I find that hard to believe, unless they don't have many patients. Um, one patient and 14% of, of respondents, and then uh, scattering of the rest. So we do have patients with prosthetic valves, um, so they've been treated, but they may have other uh, valvular disease which comes on later. That's also another thing to remember. This is a really important one. Have you ever heard of TAVI, transcutaneous aortic valve implantation? 85% uh, of respondents said yes, but 15% of respondents said no. They'd never heard of it. So this is a, a, a treatment where you can insert an aortic valve without cracking the chest open. You just put it through the femoral, uh, femoral uh, artery, and that procedure uh, you know, takes uh, one or two hours, and you don't have to cut the chest open. Patients stay in hospital for one or two days instead of seven to 10 days. The morbidity is much lower. The recovery is very fast. So I can tell you about um, a rock star. I won't mention his name. He's from the Rolling Stones. And uh, he had severe aortic stenosis. And instead of having a, you know, being intubated for you know, 24 hours in intensive care, aortic um, valve replacement, having his uh, median stenotomy, he had a transcutaneous aortic valve replacement. He was back um, performing a few days after his TAVI. So really, um, it can get people back to normal activities of daily living. So the TAVI is a very important thing to know about. And it means, you know, oh, the patient's too old for open heart surgery. They may not need it. Mitroclip, this is a, again a non-invasive procedure through the uh, femoral vein where you can uh, insert, insert a clip across the mitral valve for mitral regurgitation without again doing a stenotomy. How many of you have heard of this? Uh, only 36%, just over a third had heard of it. Almost two thirds had never heard of mitroclip. Really depressing. But you know, this is again a procedure that can be done for mitral regurgitation without a stenotomy. So th these are things we really need to know about because these are ways we can help our patients um, less invasively.
So what is the referral process? The general practitioner's role is really important in the referral process for timely referral because the timely referral is the key to early diagnosis and effective treatment. So the patients present to the GP with maybe some symptoms of aortic stenosis or maybe you just diagnose it on auscultation, maybe some chest pain or fatigue, and then you have a listen. And when you have a listen, um, you hear this murmur which is audible and you, you, um, you suspect aortic stenosis. And then after that, uh, the patient is referred to a cardiologist who again listens to the heart and then uh, performs an echocardiogram. And then that echocardiogram uh, can diagnose aortic stenosis, confirm it, and then after that, uh, we'll think about managing it, whether that may require um, referral to a heart team. So that's the um, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, also the European side of cardiology, now recommend if you've got aortic stenosis, you refer a patient to a heart team. Who makes up a heart team? I'm glad you asked. So um, it's a group of qualified healthcare professionals who collaborate. There's an interventional cardiologist, a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, a valve clinic coordinator. There's also um, someone from the cath lab, an anesthetist, uh, referring cardiologist is involved, and also an imaging specialist who looks at echoes and uh, CTs and possibly MRIs. And that multidisciplinary team uh, discuss every patient and decide what's the best management plan, whether it's open heart surgery, whether it's a transcutaneous aortic valve implantation, the TAVI, or whether it's, um, it's conservative management. The really conservative management, the geriatrician is, is really important there helping out in those sorts of patients because that really you're, um, you're committing the patient to probably 50% chance of being dead in two years. So it's all about collaboration between the different healthcare uh, individuals involved because by connecting your patients with the heart team, you can ensure a treatment plan that's right for them. And so there's comprehensive evaluation, um, you know the, the treatment journey, there's timely intervention and optimal treatment for that patient and that can guide them. So it's not one person saying you need an operation, it's a whole team approach and that's really important. How do we treat aortic stenosis? There are uh, three ways we can do it with medical management, but no drug is going to open up a narrowed valve. It can treat some of the comorbidities and some of the symptoms, but it won't make a difference to survival. As I said earlier, we can do that surgical valve replacement with a stenotomy or maybe a minimally invasive, a minimally small incision, but really it's still cracking the chest in you know, a week in hospital at least. Or we can do the transcutaneous aortic valve implantation where you feed the catheter up through the aorta and then approach the aortic valve from above, blow up the balloon with the valve seated on it, let the balloon down, it's in place. So medical therapy and balloon valvuloplasty are used to manage uh, aortic stenosis and you can see that patients unsuitable, um, all patients waiting for aortic valve replacement should be on medical therapy, but the unsuitable patients really their prognosis as early is very poor. Balloon aortic valvoplasty can be used in patients who have very symptoms, uh, very severe symptoms where you, you can't do the aortic valve implantation because they're, they're really sick, and that's a much quicker procedure. Just put a balloon in, blow it up quickly, let it out, control the symptoms, and then um, arrange them to have the more definitive procedure later, particularly if there's a long waiting time in some institutions. But patients with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis should go into aortic valve replacement, whether it be on the left with the uh, surgical procedure or on the right with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. But really, it's about symptom relief early, but definitive treatment is the most important thing because if you don't treat those patients definitively, they'll have poor outcomes. So aortic valve replacement is very effective. You can see here, this is um, data looking at no aortic valve replacement versus aortic valve replacement, and it's, it's life-saving treatment. You can see there in the red line down the bottom with no aortic valve replacement, um, 
who are symptomatic, uh, they do very poorly, but even the asymptomatic ones do quite poorly. Whereas if you replace the aortic valve, whether it be surgically or with the transcutaneous um, aortic valve implantation, there's a 40% improvement in survival. So um, aortic valve replacement is really the standard of care. Because of the risk of sudden death, it should be performed promptly after the onset of symptoms or if the gradient is high enough or the area is low enough. Survival is good. You know, 60 to 65% of patients who undergo aortic valve replacement are alive at five years, compared to only 50% at two years without treatment. So it's, um, it's the only effective treatment for severe aortic stenosis with symptoms. But what's the latest? The latest data actually shows that um, this is uh, as of uh, just a month or two ago, that 93% of patients want to get back to life and, and they love after treatment. And so the, um, the most recent indication from the Australian uh, Therapeutic Goods Administration is that all severe symptomatic aortic uh, stenosis patients are now eligible for transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. Um, so that you know, before we'd say, oh, well, if they're low risk, they have to go for surgery, that's not the case any longer. Even the low risk patients can have uh, transcutaneous aortic valve implantation if they have severe aortic stenosis, which is great because 48% of patients want to be able to perform you know, specific activities um, like work or something like that. 30% want to maintain independence with self-care, showering and walking, and 15% want to reduce or eliminate their physical symptoms and intervention, whether it be with transcutaneous intervention or surgical intervention, will get them to that point. And now, um, even if they're low risk, if they have severe aortic stenosis, they are eligible for transcutaneous aortic valve implantation, which is going to greatly reduce their morbidity and their complications. So transcutaneous aortic valve implantation continues to show a promising outlook in your patient's future. Uh, in clinical trials at five years, TAVI is comparable to um, surgery on death, stroke and rehospitalization. And at 10 years in real world data, um, the first 10 year report on TAVI durability shows that a low incidence of structural valve deterioration. And 25 years now, now we've got bench testing because it's only been around for about 10, 15 years. Tavish does show durable, um, excellent durability, and equivalent to 25 years wear with um, no difference compared to surgical valves. So really, there's this, um, this crucial role in the treatment pathway where the patient is, is at the center of everything and the general practitioner, the cardiologist and the heart team are all involved together in the treatment of severe aortic stenosis, managing them and working out the best pathway to manage them. The GP plays that key role in diagnosing the patient with atrial fibrillation, in identifying them, in suspecting it, and then referring on. And the early diagnosis is timely with a referral to a cardiologist um, and then to direct the, um, the treatment towards the best treatment option. So what are the key takeaways from what I've just said? I've told you that aortic stenosis is more common than you think. Um, almost 100,000 people living with severe aortic stenosis in Australia. The GPs are crucial in identifying aortic stenosis with um, diagnosis starting with auscultation of the heart. And that long-term survival for aortic stenosis patients is poor. And once a heart murmur is detected, we really should be referring to a cardiologist or performing an echocardiogram. So this is the most important thing I want you to think about today. Listen for a heart murmur. Suspect a typical murmur which indicates aortic stenosis and refer to a specialist for further evaluation. So listen, suspect, refer. If you do that, you'll be doing your patients a favor. You'll be improving their outcomes, improving their survival, improving their symptoms, and making sure they can live longer with a good quality of life. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast.
If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.